Hello, and it's time to step in the Pantheon. I'm your host, Matthew Holding. This is a show about watching television shows and thinking about them. Today, I'm going to be talking about two shows that are favorites of mine, and I'm guessing are probably favorites of yours, Breaking Bad and The X-Files. Both of these shows have a lot of similarity in themes and their place in television history, I guess. I've got my good friend John on today, who loves these shows as well, and I think has some very interesting things to say about them. Um... If you want to give the Facebook page a like, tell a friend about it, um, come and talk to me about it, give me some feedback, I really appreciate it, really appreciate the feedback you guys have been giving me. Just a bit of a warning as always, um, if you haven't seen the episode and you really want to watch one of the shows long term, specifically Breaking Bad in this episode, I would suggest maybe not listening to this one or clicking ahead because there are some pretty important spoilers. Um, what else can we talk about? Uh, Today, Catherine Coulson passed away, the lady who played the log lady um, on Twin Peaks, which is some pretty sad news, as she, I think she's one of the most iconic television characters ever, and she'll be sorely missed, and I guess this podcast goes out to her. Um, the Emmys was last week, that was cool. John Hamm finally got his Best Male Lead Award, which he's been deserving for for many, many years, and I think was a great cap-off for Mad Men. Viola Davis got Best Female Lead as being the first black woman to win that in a drama series of all time for How to Get Away with Murder, which I don't think is the greatest show ever, but she really carries that performance in that and is very deserving of it. And Game of Thrones, they got uh, the Best Drama Series. Not my favorite show ever, but I can understand why they got it. So I guess that's about it. So enjoy the episode. I'm like a phoenix rising from Arizona. Or Albuquerque, New Mexico. Or maybe even Adelaide, South Australia. Why am I speaking about Phoenixes? Because we're looking at Breaking Bad's amazing episode, Phoenix, today. Which was at the end of the second last episode of Season 2. And is one of the most important episodes in that series run. To talk about it with me today is my good friend John. How you doing, John? Pretty good, thanks, Matt. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Bit of an origin story. Now, I'm a modest man. But also, I can be a stubborn man and a self-righteous man and someone who's got a lot of pride. But I will be honest, John was the person who got me into Breaking Bad many, many moons ago. Um, and I had no idea about it. And I think he may have been the first person in Adelaide to ever enjoy this show. Just a humble brag for you. But yeah, talk a little bit about how you like uh, Breaking Bad, John. Um, well, I stumbled across uh, Breaking Bad on Foxtel. Uh, namely Showcase, and it was the start of Season 2. And I believe the night you were speaking of, you and Sam and a few others came over. And uh, what grabbed my attention was the fact that uh, Brian Cranston was in it. And, uh, yeah, just watching uh, Malcolm in the Middle as a kid, I figured it might be a good watch. And after that, started on uh, with the rest of the season. And then... Uh, just as season two started to pick up around that time on Showcase, season one came out on DVD, and I uh, picked that up, and yeah, was immediately hooked after watching the first season, and then realizing how the second season worked afterwards, so yeah. Awesome, awesome. I feel like a lot of people have a pretty similar experience with uh, playing, I guess, Catch Me Up with Breaking Bad, mm. at least in Australia, because it really didn't hit its like stride and its relevancy till a few seasons in, at least in like Australian um, television culture. Anyway, we're talking about Phoenix today. Um, 
Phoenix, if you will remember or you haven't seen it, or if you haven't seen it, probably watch it before listening to this, um, is at the end of season two. I kind of think of it as the Requiem for a Dream or Train Spotting episode because it deals with excessive heroin drug use and that always weirds me out in television shows. But this show episode is about the build-up of the tension between Jesse and Walt um, and Walt's eventual moral turn to being the bad man that we see in him and it finally results in the death of Jane, Jesse's girlfriend, by Walt uh, turning basically letting her um, choke on her own vomit in a heroin overdose, which is probably one of the most frightening and confronting and dark and, you know, fucked up parts of Breaking Bad, which, you know, really does leave a bad feeling in your stomach, and it's meant to because that is to be seen as the turn that Walt has. Um, Yeah, John, how do you find this episode? Yeah, I'd I'd have to agree with you. Um, uh, The... uh, while we're on the topic of the end of the episode, um, uh, I was watching it again today, and I also watched it last night. And upon rewatching it again, um, realized that uh, it's it's one of those defining moments in the season where, well, not necessarily the season, but the series where uh, you you really start to see that shift from Walter being the the anti-hero character yeah and you really start to see that shift towards him becoming the villain throughout the series yeah like because this you lose all compassion for him yeah you lose all empathy for him at this stage it really puts you through a moral mm, throes because the the whole scene being you know quite confronting as it is um you know even just the fact that it's a tv show um it's quite a visceral scene in my opinion and the way the way he reacts to it, um, you know, he's obviously distressed. Like there's there's still some remnants of, of of humanity in him at that stage, but yeah, as I said, it's it's one of those things where it it it's one of those kind of defining moments before he becomes you know the hard callous villain that we all see at the end of the series. Yeah, to scale it back um, to the start, the more overviewical points. One of my favourite things about Breaking Bad is that I think it's a modern reinterpretation of the idea of the West in America and Westerns and stuff like that. And it's, you know, it is a bit of a modern spaghetti Western. This episode is not particularly one of those episodes Mm. as it doesn't really deal with the cartel or the, you know, the drug world and um, the DEA and whatnot. And it doesn't particularly deal with, I guess, the themes of... uh, masculinity as a concept Mm. within american tropes of um, heroes and bad men and stuff like that this episode i feel is more family orientated and i think that um the theme of being a father is one of the biggest um in this episodes i mean obviously at the start uh we see walt missing the birth of his second child because he is too busy delivering uh, a drug package to gus fring um to which he's lying about to Skylar. Um, and might I add lying about it um, just quite easily and like like it's his natural nature. Mm. Not like at least like a few episodes before this when uh, Skylar finds out about his second phone. Like he, he's pretty bad at lying about it. But at this stage, he's really cracked on to like how, it, how easy it is for mm. him to lie and leave this double life. Um, anyway, but back to, you know, being a father. I think, you know... There is obviously a theme of Walt being a father figure to Jesse, 
um, and the tension that rises between them. It's Shakespearean, if anything, I think. Um, the way in which he tries to be a father figure and, and a mentor to Jesse, um, to a person who is really resembles the Ouroboros, the snake eating its own mm-hmm. head. Um, yeah, I don't know. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I'd agree. Um, the the role between Jesse and Walter, from Walter's perspective, it definitely seems like a uh, a caretaker position almost. And yeah, like you said, uh, a father position. I mean, even in the action of when Walt so monstrously lets Jane die, there's symbolism of fatherhood um, to Jesse. I think he sees himself as both Walt the controller and Walt the father. He's Walt the controller in allowing um, Jane to die to protect himself and his own business interests. But there's also Walt the father in allowing Jane to die to do what he thinks is best for Jesse. To mm-hmm. you know, he thinks that Jane is you know like he called her a junkie slut or something like that. Um, he thinks that he, she will be a constant hinder to Jesse's life. Who I do think, as much as he does use and abuse Jesse, he does want the best for him ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I really like this episode because it also exemplifies just how brilliant Breaking Bad is at the pawns aligning in the script work and whatnot, particularly with the interplay between Jane's father coming into the script, um, Walt and Jane's father meeting at the bar and having a conversation Mm -hmm. about what being a good father is and whatnot. Um, I mean, Vince Gilligan is so good at setting up, you know, uh, the changing lanes type of script work where, you know, characters cross each other and coming from unseemly directions. And I think it's a testament to him as such a good script writer and such a good showrunner. I think it's a meditation on a long-running theme in Breaking Bad on ideas about randomness, chance, predeterminism, fate, intervention, whatever you call it, like how much control do people have. Walt is all about control. That's the one thing which he holds dear is being able to control the situation. And, I mean, ultimately, I think a lot of the time, as much as he does his best, it spins out of his control because in this universe of Breaking Bad, when people are constantly crossing over... Walt is unable to have control, and I think that really cuts at the heart of what his character is all about. Um, I mean, we can see this also, the, the brilliant crossovers and of people in the script work in uh, good old Sol Goodman's office. Do you like Sol, John? Yeah, Sol's all right. Sol's cool. Sol's funny. I love Odin De- Odenkirk. Yeah, he's the best. He's a good time. I mean, it's just brilliant the way in which they're able to think about using uh, Walt Jr.'s um, page, startup page to fund Walt's cancer treatment as being able to funnel his uh, money, um, dirty money from, through and launder it. I think that was a great part of it. Um, yeah, John, what are you thinking? <laughs> yeah, that was a great part of it. Um, I found it particularly humorous up until... Uh, the point where the money starts coming in that morning, yeah, and um, it it kind of becomes cruel at that point, you know. Um, <laughs> it's it's still that point in the series as well where the whole family, or at least no one really knows yet, uh, what uh, Walt's been up to, and yeah, this this episode has some interesting things to say about money. One thing I noticed from looking at it is Walt 
does not look at his newborn baby with as much fondness as he does as opening up a big bag of money. When he looks at that money at the start of that episode, it is ultimate freedom from him, from his life, from the things that have kept him chained up. And I think that Breaking Bad looks at money as something in which people think frees them, but I think ultimately it does keep them um, not doing too well in life, I guess you could say. I mean, you know... Jesse and Jane, they think the money will free them. The money probably won't free them. The money probably will keep them drug addicts and whatnot. Potentially, at least that's what the character outlook looks mm-hmm. like. Um, Walt also, you know, money is a big thing for him. I think, you know, it's been talked about a lot, but he represents this idea of white privilege in the post-global uh, financial crisis um, era. He represents an archetype of a man who feels like they're owed something, feels like they deserve something, feel are angry at doing the right thing their whole life and being the boring teacher and not getting theirs, um, and to have that taken away from them during the global financial crisis. Um, and Walt, the only way that he is able to emancipate himself from this type of white privilege is by breaking the law and becoming the drug baron and making the rules for himself and, once again, creating control for himself. Um, I think it portrays kind of a disturbing picture of white privilege and American masculinity in a, like, modern Americana, I guess. Yeah. Um, this is an interesting episode because we're at a crossroads of the series where everything's kind of getting to the point where it's going to be about Gus Springs. And I was very disappointed that we weren't able to get any Gus Fring in this episode because he's one of my favorite characters ever. John, how do you feel about Gus Fring? Gus Fring's a good character, but uh, I didn't really come to enjoy him until towards the end of season four, unfortunately. I uh, Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. It's just like, I love that he is so better at doing Walter White than Walter Wright is doing at Walter, being Walter White. Like, mm. he is so cool and composed in his life, and he doesn't need to be... Well, he is the genius, but he doesn't have so much self-pride that he needs to be seen as doing it um, as a matter of honour and code. Uh, Gus Fring just does it for survival, and mm. that's all. That's why he proves to be the one that comes out on top most of the time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I... I'd suppose, but uh, you could also say that Gus is a lot more experienced at it. That's than true. Walter is. So. Well, I mean, yeah, Gus has been doing it for a mm. lot longer. Who would have known if Breaking Bad lasted for twenty years? Who, mm. you know, who would have who would have yeah. known what who type would of those barren characters become? Walter White could be in Narcos right mm. now. <laughs> who yeah. knows? Huh. Something which has always nagged me about Breaking Bad watching and the Breaking Bad fan base is that Skylar always became a bloody you know, punching bag for all of the people out there who thought Walt was the greatest guy in the world. Skylar's cool. Skylar's great. Skylar had her husband turn into a drug baron and didn't predict predict that and had that happen behind her back. And I think this happens to a lot of uh, female wives in television history. Carmela Soprano, Betty Draper, all of these wives got viewed in a lot of television audiences as being annoying or a nag or stopping their the great protagonist from accomplishing all their goals and whatnot when they were bad men for mm, the most part. Yeah. And they're not meant to be anything other than that. I mean, yes, they have psychologically uh, challenging and ambiguous roles and whatnot, but I feel like, yeah, that these characters, particularly Skylar, got turned into such a punching bag mm-hmm. um, 
was pretty unfair, right? Yeah. I mean, how would you feel? <laughs> it's it's very interesting that you that you illustrate that because when you when you look at what happens to Skylar throughout the whole TV series, the way Walter treats her horribly. Yeah, it's uh, if you if you imagined from her perspective any of that happening to you, it's your it's life not, would be in yeah in in peril, and hers was, and yeah. rightly so. And then, but you take the way that the audience reacted to Skylar, and the way you said that they treated her like a punching bag is very kind of. It's interesting the way that Breaking Bad took a situation where, in reality, most of the world would probably be on Skylar's side. You'd hope so. In, I think so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and in the in the TV series, everyone thinks you know she's annoying and a nag and stuff like that. Um, whereas, yeah, like I said, in in real life, Walter would be, you know, be made a pariah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The yeah. Thi- like the thing is, television audiences love are great troubled male protagonists mm-hmm. who are psychologically troubled and are morally ambiguous but ultimately are likable funny intelligent smart characters and i think anyone particularly women who get in their way as television characters are made to be viewed as a hindrance to the show mm. and i feel like that's pretty shit because skylar was one of the best parts about the show she had some of the best psychological development in the show Mm. she very much empowered herself while being um at you know at odds with walt and whatnot and i think that was a great development within her character so yeah shout out to skylar you're beautiful you're wonderful Mm. um and you know don't ever any let any anyone tell you anything otherwise to wrap it up I mean, I think this is one of the most important episodes in the Breaking Bad history, would you say, John? Yeah, season season two for me was probably my favourite. Um, and uh, the last, yeah, three to last episodes, including this one, really kind of wrap up what winds up happening at the end of the season. Um, it's really about, in this episode... It's about viewing the moral turn that everyone's talked about, but it is so explicitly seen in Walt, just his turn to darkness where you really can't like him anymore Mm, after what he does to Jane and how horrible he starts to be to his family and his wife and how much he compromises it. It's about the rising tension between Jesse and Walt and I guess their, yeah, Shakespearean interplay about, you know, how they're constantly at odds with one another, but are constantly depend and need on one another. And it's something, you know, it's a show of betrayal, obviously. It's about Jesse and how he represents the Ouroboros. He is the snake that eats its own head and he will continuously fall back on his own ways. Unfortunately, the show punishes him like that, but that was his course. And yeah, I think it's about Walt's need for control. And it's... Mm. um and about how control is very frail in an uncertain world when sometimes you can't control these events. So I reckon we'll take a quick break and then we'll talk about The X-Files. And we're back. Right now we're going to talk about an episode of The X-Files. I think The X-Files is just one of those shows that really got me into television and made me realise that television series could be something you obsess over and not just something you flick flick on something you could you know fall in love with the characters of you know 
um, become dedicated to their lives and distort you know fiction and reality as a little kid at least um, and you know very scary stuff that kept me up at night we're going to be talking about a season six episode called Drive which has our boy Brian Cranston in it this episode aired in 1998 um season six was a weird period for the x-files because it was just after the movie and it was when they moved the set locations from their longtime place of vancouver to la and it was a bit of a change and like you know some people say that this is when the x-files went a little bit downhill this or season seven but i think this episode's great John, talk to me about the X-Files, your history of it. Uh, yeah, the X-Files is a good time. My dad got me into the X-Files when I was a kid, and yeah, I had some of the same uh, unfortunate nightmarish experiences Yeah. as a kid with it, as you mentioned. Um, yeah, I really like it. Like, I'm right into all of those kind of conspiracy theories and um, the ideas that the X-Files puts across, you know, how especially with this particular episode, how it's kind of just the one-off episodes where they go out and... Yeah, yeah, the monster of the things. week. Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't kind of tie in with the overall season theme. So this episode takes place in Idaho country, and Mulder and Scully are out because they've been taken off the X-Files. They're out investigating domestic terrorism, which was very telling of the time in the post-Oklahoma City bombing world. When they come across Mr. Crump, played by uh, Brian Cranston, who eventually ends up kidnapping Mulder and taking him on a highway cruise where he's got a very, very pounding headache, the same headache that his wife's head exploded from. And he keeps Mulder at gunpoint the whole time, telling him to go west and very fast. And basically, um, this episode is a look at... I guess, government control in research and how it affects middle America and the type of experiments that the government can do on people. Um, basically, it turns out that the farm property which Mr. Crump owns, there has been uh, military research done under the ground in some sort of cable network, which has created a sound which has don't ask me the science, but it has enabled something in his brain that if he does not go west and very quickly, his head will explode like his wife's head explodes. And basically, this episode is a little bit like Speed. Um, it's kind of self-aware in that it references it, and Mulder gets kidnapped by uh, Crump and has to go very fast along the highway while the police are chasing him at a gunpoint and also trying to figure out what's going on with Mr. Crump. How'd you like this episode, John? Yeah, it was a good episode. Uh, I liked it. Uh, it had uh, all of the things that what uh, made the X Files a great show for me in it, um, uh, namely, you know, blood and violence. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Who doesn't love yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Brian Brian Cranston was a pretty interesting character in this episode as well, um, and yeah, the the whole kind of government take on you know, them being able to essentially do whatever they want is is something that I find pretty interesting. Um, namely, in just the, the way they kind of portray it in the way it kind of appears in uh, all the parallels it has to reality, um, you know, in America's uh, history of its Defense Department and you know, yeah, what they're for allowed sure. to accomplish. You Definitely. Know. I think, like, the Defense Department stuff kind of takes, like, a backseat in this episode. Mm. Ultimately, it's, like, the cause of it. 
But I think there's like a lot more to say in this. I think that one of the major themes in this is as Mulder and Scully were being seen as doing busy work by investi- investigating, uh, you know, farmers who have high stockpiles of manure mm-hmm. thought to be making bombs for their domestic terrorism in like the poster, you know, Waco, OKC, uh, bombing like Ruby Ridge mm-hmm. type of survivalist era. Um, I think it's a comment on like what was about the idea of the FBI being a delinquent agency who mm-hmm. are unable to stop these type of uh, groups when, you know, historically America has been much more paranoid of, you know, yeah. foreign, um, you know, threats and whatnot. And I think that this is an interesting take on, you know, the FBI and the threat of, you know, survivalism in America during mm. the 90s, which I think is like very cool stuff. I don't know. Yeah. I, I love yeah. all that type of thing. Um, I don't know. Mulder and Scully, what a combo. The way that they talk to each other, like the, the dialogue that they have between phones on this mm. episode is so good. Like I've it's so warming and charming and the way that they you know, they work out the puzzle together is nothing like I've ever really yeah. seen on T V. And even after the scene where um uh Walter has to refuel the car because it's come out and uh uh the person behind the counter at the gas station won't switch the pump on because it's a pay before you fill up and they steal some other guy's car and um at that point the police in charge of uh pursuing them at that time lets uh scully know and scully doesn't take a word of it she says just you know follow them like, yeah she trusts yeah, Molly. they yeah, trust each other trust so much that's one of the big things mm. of the x-files just the trust that they have for each other the unconditional love whether that's a love of friendship or anything more, I mm. guess that's the big question in the X-Files, yeah, which divides yeah, yeah. the shippers from the non-shippers. Um, but yeah, this is one of those episodes, like any of their episodes, where just their dialogue is so perfectly timed to the beat of each other. Mm. That, um, you know, I, I don't think you've seen anything else like that in television history. Um, it's really funny, too. I don't know. I, I like when they were, you know, the way that they talk to middle America the everyday citizens mm. there's a little bit of condescension but ultimately you can tell that they really do like these people because they see that these people as the victims of the mass government conspiracy yeah, yeah. and whatnot they see that these you know the farmers the everyday people mm-hmm. who have no idea what's going on and might yeah, be a yeah, little exactly. bit stupid as ultimately being good-hearted people who a you know uh shadow government nwa nwo um call it what you will is the one who are you know plotting against them yeah 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 it's it's quite interesting how they portrayed almost almost what really happens yeah in reality you know the u.s the u.s government tends in these situations to just be able to walk over its own citizens you know it, it yeah. was it was this uh crump characters farm you know and because of what the u.s uh defense department was experimenting with you know him his wife and you know his dog on his property when they go to visit it you know well yeah or subsequently die and i think this episode starts off making you think that this is a comment on the paranoia which it is the comment that the american on the paranoia that the american government and its uh police agencies had against the threat of survivalism Mm. and domestic terrorism and Mm. the michigan militia and groups like that but ultimately the big baddie turns out to be uh the type of the big baddie turns out to be who the Michigan militia and the survival scandal, mm. the government, the yeah. defense department and whatnot. And so it puts, 
um, it you know subverts what you start off the episode thinking what it could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got a question for you, John Scully. Is she's got her whole like Center for Disease Control like mm-hmm. plague outbreak thing going on this episode because they gradually work out that the sound that gets into these people's head that makes their head explode is contagious. Mm-hmm. She's always in laboratories that are very, very, very dark. Why is that? You'd think that they'd have turn a light on, right? Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm no, I'm no doctor. I couldn't really speak of any. It would seem optimal to turn as many lights on when doing autopsies yep. on people's brains. That's yep, something. I mean, I know sure. that they have to do mood lighting and whatnot, but um, mm. that was something that I had trouble with. But whatever, we'll forget, we'll forgive and forget with the X Files. It's a great show. The interaction between Brian Cranston's character, Mr. Crump, and Mulder when they're in their sort of Stockholm Syndrome hostage situation driving along the California coast, they have some great dialogue because they start off as visceral enemies, obviously. Uh-huh. Um, you know, Brian Cranston's character is saying some pretty anti-Semitic things to Mulder when he believes that he's part of the government conspiracy to take over the farmers of middle America, which I think adds an... Just as a little bit of a history tidbit adds a little bit of complexity to the character and it shows the rise of anti-Semitism in paranoid anti-government mindsets which came at a consequence of the KKK and groups like that turning towards anti-Semitism and anti-government at the end of the civil rights era when they basically started to believe that Jews were the reason why they weren't allowed to be racist to black people anymore and stuff like that. So that shows some complexity too. Mm. Uh, the character being a Looney Tune and whatnot, but yeah, they gradually grow a mutual bond of respect and camaraderie with one another when they both are working towards a similar goal. And I find that it's kind of a very warming experience. I mean, ultimately, Cranston's character dies in the end; his mm. head blows up, and it's very sad for Mulder because um, I think it shows how futile and helpless he sometimes feels about endeavoring to fight against these government conspiracies and how powerless he can be to mm-hmm. stop these things when you know there's a big bad government which has already planned the you know these type of things yeah yeah i it that definitely becomes apparent as well once they establish that yeah this was the result of the u.s defense department um uh definitely towards the end of the episode uh Mulder realizes that yeah they both share that I wouldn't, I wouldn't really say a common enemy, but, you know, Mulder's, Mulder's drive throughout the series is, you know, to well, that's the, the thing. Truth, I mean, like, and that's what Mr. their common Crump goal becomes and about. Mr. Mulder, which they affectionately call each other, they're kind of on the same page. They both think that everything is a big, mm. big bad conspiracy to yep. do with aliens or surveillance or anything like that. Just being lied to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But... It's a sad ending, I think, because it outlines Mulder's feelings of about the futility of his human compassion um, against the inevitable cold humanity-less institution of the government and whatnot (laughs) and how he is powerless to stop these things which he endeavours so hard to. I mean, I think it's at the end, Kirsch, uh, the FBI director at the time, um, says, you obviously relish the opportunity to become a martyr, which Mm -hmm. he does. Yeah, Yeah. That's what his life is. It's a mission. He becomes a martyr for these causes. Yeah. It's about the futility of human compassion against the elites who hold the Mm. power and keep the secrets in society. As we know, The X-Files is coming back, which I don't think it's going to be very good, but whatever. I hope it's good. 
Kamal Nanjiani is in it, who does his own podcast about the X-Files, which I feel very uh, happy for him, the dude from Silicon Valley, who's um, a lot of fun, and I really respect his podcast. But anyway, there's this idea about that it's a great thing that the X-Files is coming back because it's relevant and it we need the X-Files in this modern age because when we have things like the NSA um, spying on us and Edward Snowden happening and hacking happening and the the type of themes which influenced and created the X-Files back in the 90s are actually happening in our world today and that's why we need to show like the X-Files. But when looking at this episode, I think we need the X-Files for another reason. I think when you get... Um, I guess these type of middle America survivalist anti-government, you know, anti-Semite truth and nuts, which this episode comments on a lot. I think we need that more than ever when we see uh, the rise of Donald Trump, particularly, um, and the type of his, the type of people which would support him being these type of blocks, this type of paranoia in American society, which, um, you know, creates Obama truthers and people believing that, you know, Muslims are creating death camps already on American shores and that the American military is planning hostile takeovers of Texas. There is a huge amount of paranoia in the American psyche right now and this episode deals with that type of paranoia in American psyche explicitly. And I think, you know, forget us, forget surveillance, I think that we need the X-Files to shine the light back on just how paranoid a society have gotten. Obviously, this podcast looks at both episodes of Brian Cranston. Um, this episode was also written by Vince Gilligan um, of Breaking Bad, and was kind of the inspiration, I think, for him to get Brian Cranston in the in Breaking Bad. Um, by the end of it, um, how do you feel about the duality of these two performances and the evolution of Brian Cranston as an actor? Yeah, there's definitely some similarities uh, between the role he plays in the X-Files and um, uh, Breaking Bad and just, you know, obviously Brian Cranston himself. Um, uh, as, as you mentioned before, it was kind of funny in the X-Files episode that uh, he took on, you know, a role of being a uh, on a position of anti-Semitism because yeah. uh, that's, a, you know, a first as far as I've seen with him to be in any kind of, you know, position that involves, you know, racism it's not like nice whatever. to like play a racist as an actor yeah 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 but it's kind of just funny especially because it's brian cranston yeah it definitely yeah. it um you're not used to seeing him being a hate-filled paranoid yeah yeah exactly type. yeah um, um in fact it's almost it's almost 180 degrees like completely different to well, definitely you know, from Malcolm in, in the middle yeah <laughs> yeah and to breaking bad as well um yeah i mean like waltz well, pretty apolitical yeah, in Breaking yeah, Bad. He yeah. doesn't seem to have a political bone in his body, um, from my memory at least. I think that one of the big themes in this X-Files episode is the idea of momentum and the idea of what keeps things moving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, explicitly, that uh, the car has to keep moving in this episode and, mm-hmm. you know, Mr. Crump has to keep moving. But I think that there's a duality between Walter White and Mr. Crump in that they need their momentum to keep going for survival. I mean, I think I read this in the AV Club from an excellent review that Walt's kind of like a shark. If he stops swimming, he'll die. He has to keep moving. He has to keep going to protect himself, protect his family, protect his identity. 
um, Mr. Crump, more explicitly, has to keep moving or he will literally, his head mm. will blow up. And I think that obviously it's a little bit meta in the idea of momentum being what moves the show, what moves the script. I mean, it's the it's how high speed this episode is. It's how fast paced it is. It's how quick things move. And it's explicitly seen in a car, but I think yeah. it's also a comment on what is what makes a good script what makes a show entertaining what makes television entertaining mm. it's the engine of it. yeah you yeah. know what i mean yeah yeah the episodes uh the x-files episodes yeah much throughout the whole uh episode is much faster paced than the the breaking bad episode is and um it's it's very interesting because the way that this particular episode that vince gilligan uh directed is uh completely different to the way he did um you know all of breaking bad well, um, I, I don't know i see some similarities I yeah think, like the tension and the trepidation and the way you're kind of on the edge of your seat in this drive mm-hmm. episode is like similar to like breaking bad yeah i mean like you know i, you know, I don't know it reminded me of ozymandias at sometimes like mm. just those driving out into the desert kind of yeah. scenes and like you know the the ticking time bomb sort of scenarios um that's something which you know is Vince Gilligan is so good at doing mm. and I think that he employed this so well in this X-Files episode literally mm. the literal ticking time bomb yeah. inside Brian Cranston's head ready to explode yeah which it does it blows all over the back of Mulder's car I just I don't know I kind of feel that it's not his his work on that episode is just not quite as maybe it was the rest of the uh, people he was working with yeah um, it's a bit but, more faint yeah yeah maybe there's also a little bit of after watching all of Breaking Bad and having be- it being such an important show, looking back and then knowing that Vince Gilligan did this, you can't help but influence your thinking to think, oh, yeah, this reminds me a bit of Breaking Bad. And, like, yeah. you know, con- consequently, like, yeah, the way you watch it is kind of tarred by how important, you know, the guy is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you have any final comments on this show, on this episode? Um... No, that's that's about all I've got to say. Um, yeah. For real. Like, I think that this has been a very interesting way to look at the way in which actors, screenwriters, directors and whatnot can evolve and the different performances that they can take on and how television is fluid and how where someone was in one place at one certain place of time they can be somewhere down the line 10 years later move on to great things move on to better things but have it all kind of seem relative in the end and Mm -hmm. being able to analyze it from two different points yeah well i think that's about enough for tonight thank you everyone for listening thank you john so much for coming on it's been a pleasure Glad, glad to finally be in the pantheon absolutely well tune in next time this has been in the pantheon 